You're trying to encourage me, right? <laughs> God, tell that to my body. Old age is awful. Most of you out there are too young. You don't know. Oh, you don't even know. Oh, you don't. Old age is awful. God. Huh? Oh, you're too young to say that. You haven't earned it yet. It's a privilege for what? For what? Granted to the few. You're too young to say that too. God, you guys. Trouble with you guys if you've been reading too much literature. God. Oh God. Oh. Who brought wine? Come on, let's start. Shakespeare. 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 Shakespeare? Yeah. Uh, we have to do a poem. For those of you who have lost your memory, for those of you who are too young to lose your memory. Remember the last poem we read was um, Sonnet 129. It's that beautiful poem on lust. It's, we don't get an image of lust, the, the whole action, verbal action of the poem um, enacts it, makes us to feel the action, the way it twists back on itself and um, jerks and turns. Remember, enjoyed no sooner, but spies straight, past reason hunted, no sooner had, past reason, just goes, it, it's these two things conflicting, knocking at each other, the wanting to do good and and feeling the pressure of lust. Had having and in proof, um, a quest to have, extreme a bliss in proof, and proved a very woe. Before a joy proposed, behind a dream. All this the world well knows, yet none knows well, to shun the heavens that lead men to. So the promise of this um, ecstasy drives us on, and no sooner do we have it than we find ourselves in hell. Um, and I'm hoping, every, I'm trusting everybody to see that this is not just true of lust, it's true for any desire. When we want something too bad, when we give too much importance to it, it turns out to be a dark force. The, one of the wonderful readings this um, last weekend had to do with idolatries, the, the Jews turning away from idols and God calling them back. It was a wonderful reading um, about the way in which we as human beings create these idols to worship. Name what they are in our age. Security, comfort, pleasure, food, vacations, ease. We, we, God. Dostoevsky is tearing all this apart. I mean, that's what Brothers is about. We want a heaven on earth. We want heaven here. So we elevate these things and give them an importance that's undue, all the while knowing they're going to make us miserable, and we still do it. So, before a joy proposed, behind a dream, all this the world well knows. We know it. Yet none knows well to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. Um, the next sonnet, 130, and we've read this before, I love it, because you know that 
that I set it against the Petrarchan tradition in Italy, which was the beginning of the Renaissance, where Petrarch had elevated his beloved Laura and made her this queen of everything that he worshipped. And all of his poetry um, is an expression of his grief and his torment because of the suffering that he undergoes for her sake. And so he idolizes her, puts her on this pedestal, and Shakespeare's aware of the dangers of that because when a man puts a woman on a pedestal like that, he's creating a, a misery for himself. Um, so 130 is a poem in its own right, but it also looks back to the Petrarchan sonnet. Remember, Petrarch wrote a whole sonnet cycle, a large number of poems. So did Shakespeare in, this, in his sonnet cycle. This is sonnet 130. My mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why then her breasts are done. If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. I have seen roses damasked red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. And in some perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from her mistress reeks. <laughs> Who wants to kiss a woman whose breath is bad? Shakespeare. I mean, just remember that. Whatever you do going forward. Um, and in some perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant that I never saw a goddess go. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. And yet by heaven, I think my love as rare as any she belied with false compare. I love this poem. Just love it. I mean, it shows what, but because I hope everybody, you know, if, you read, if you've read enough literature, you know that a lot of Jane Austen was full of it, Dickens, everybody. But men very often marry a woman for beauty. And once they've been married, they discover how lacking in beauty she is inside, and what they want to do is run. Um, Shakespeare's not doing that. He's presenting a woman with all of her faults and saying still, she's beyond compare with all these other beautiful women, that he learns to see her for some innate goodness she has in herself, whatever her faults are. I'll read it one more time, and then we'll start Dostoevsky, okay? 1.30. My mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why then her breasts are done. If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. I have seen roses damasked, red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. And in some perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak, Yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. And yet by heaven, I think my love as rare as any she belied with false compare. I love that poem. Somebody needs to write a poem reversing it so that a woman can say that about a man with all of his, with all of his stupid faults. Okay. Um, I 
attached an essay by Alan Tate to the letter I sent you all. It's obviously, you know, it's, it's not a requirement. I just, um, I'm writing a piece and I'm actually quoting Tate and using this essay. This essay haunts me. It just stays on my mind a lot. I think T.S. Eliot and Alan Tate were probably the two greatest literary critics of the modern world. And, liter and um, neither one of them confined their criticism to literature. They were men of letters in the sense that they were responding to the problems of the modern world. So they were taking on the problems head on. And even if they didn't go to those problems through literature, literature was on their mind. So occasionally they'll mention literature. But very often it's not the focus of an essay. The focus of an essay can be the corruption of a culture or the disintegration of the modern mind, which most of us, I certainly am one of us, feel is a reality in our world, that the modern mind has disintegrated, that we live in illusions with reason gone. Our, I mean, our whole work in the um, apologetic section of the class was to go to the root of that, that we are America, the West is a people lost. Dostoevsky is showing a Russia on the verge of loss, and you know that how seriously I take that. I've asked this question multiple times. How do we get from Dostoevsky to Solzhenitsyn? Solzhenitsyn's already there in Brothers. Why is Dostoevsky not showing him? Russia's already on the threshold of socialism. We're a generation. It's there. So um, most of the writers that we're reading don't have much good to say about our modern world. If you came to this class to be happy, my hope is that you, you know that you should be looking for happiness in other ways. Um, so um, I put that essay there for you just because I admire it so much. You don't have to read it, but I can say this honestly. Uh, to me, it's one of the most important essays in the 20th century. It's just a profound. He's talking about the man of letters, the person who has the responsibility to look at the world and remind us of what it is we should be doing in the world and what we're not doing. Okay. Brothers, I'm going to do a really fast review I'm really sorry Mary's not here because one of my questions is going to go to her. Um, three quick notes. The great theme of Russia, as we, or I mean the great theme of Brothers, we know is it's about a nation, a people undergoing a trial of faith. These new, presumably enlightened ways are attacking head-on Christian ways of looking at the world. We saw it in Melville, it was one of the great themes of Melville, that, a, that a, a whole traditional Christian way of looking at the world, it was America for centuries, has come under attack. Um, part of the attack comes from Protestantism, we saw that in Melville, a whole New England Protestant world is in collapse, and science. Melville was aware of um, the negative effects of science on, on Ahab. Um, we're seeing the same thing, um, I think, in far more concretely and far more vastly in Brothers Kermazo. Two things that people often miss that we shouldn't miss in Brothers is that one, there's an element of satire in the book. 
you've seen it, that, that constantly Dostoevsky is making fun of something. Manipian Santar, we've talked about it. Um, it's a way of fracturing a mirror and taking a mirror and, and taking something that's familiar but shattering it. So that something that's very familiar takes on an unfamiliar look and we learn to see it in a new way. So satire helps us to do that. So with Fyodor, he's a despicable man, just a despicable man. But if we're reading closely, it's impossible to read him and not realizing at some point he's telling truths that other people are not. So as much as we dislike him, and remember this, as much as we dislike him, we have to look at the way we are responding. Because Zosimov said, this is from the center of the book, Zosimov says, do not judge. Unless you have a sense of your own weaknesses, don't judge another person. That was crucial. Are we aware of the way we've judged Fedor? And just to back that up, how many people grieve over his death? I don't remember one of his sons grieving over that man's death. They, he's, he's, an un, he's an unlikable character. Nobody's doing what Zosimov, not Alyosha, not Ivan, not Dmitri. It's an old way of doing things. Everybody wants to get rid of it. Everybody wants to get onto a better world. That's true of every single generation that's ever lived. Every generation wants to do better than the past. If you look at our world today, it's doing everything it can to destroy our world. It dismantles it. The cancel culture is doing everything they can to bury it. It, it won't bear our sins. It, it can't be more anti-Christ because Christ said, pick up the past and redeem it. Um, so, um, one of the themes is satiric, that Melville is partly making fun, Dostoevsky is making fun, encouraging us to see that it's important to step back, to see things in a more um, dispassionate way. And if, Zos, if Father Zosim is the moral standard by which to do that, then it seems to me we come up lacking. It's one of the major themes of the novel. I'll come to it in a minute. Misreading. Everybody, everybody in this novel misreads. Everybody misreads. And the second one you know is um, that it has detective elements. The whole story is a detective story. Is um, Theodore going to get killed? Right in the opening, Dimitri says he's going to kill him. There's this um, dark cloud hanging over the novel, will Theodore be killed? And you know in the middle of the novel we discover he is. At that point the novel becomes openly detective because Dimitri is accused and all the evidence um, supports the, belief, the position that people take that he's the murderer. Why does Dostoevsky do that? I don't want to answer it because it's going to be a major, I want to come back to that and, and have um, a real discussion on it. Everything that Dostoevsky does reinforces the evidence that Dmitri is the killer, of the murderer of his father, that this is about parasite, getting rid of the father. And in that sense it means, so hold on, so Zosimov is dying, yeah, Zosimov is dying. An old way of living is dying out. The father, the role of the father is dying out. The whole modern world in some sense seems to be to get rid of the father. That's Freud. By the way, Freud is doing that too. Get rid of the father. Is it possible to look at the attitude towards fathers in our world 
and not see what goes on in the Old Testament. That everything that goes on in the Old Testament among Jews is turning from the Father. That obedience, honoring the Father, was central, that our, our primary, our original sin was to disobey the Father. Feminism, the modern world, dead white men, the modern world is doing everything it can to get rid of dads. And I'm saying that, I hope you hear how earnest I am in that. The, the role of the father has been taken away. The, the notion of equality, which I think is one of the most stupid doctrines ever, we're not, we're not all equal. There are many ways in which women are infinitely superior to men. Some individuals are better than, a, you know, I mean, it's just, we're unequal. The, when God created us, he created this great variety and this great inequality. Some people can play basketball better than others. Some can play cellos, you know. Some people are smarter. Some people are more capable of loving. I mean, there are just inequalities among us. And there's something to be celebrated in that. Um, trying to make everybody equal is the motive of envy. I don't want, to be, I don't want anybody being better than I am. That's socialism. I want everything to be the same. And you know that Dostoevsky is horrified at that. Um, but the detective novel aspect of the book will Fyodor be killed and when he is killed who killed him and moreover after that is Dmitri guilty and what will happen to Grushenka and Dmitri because they're the only couple in the novel who seems to have any chance at love so the detective aspect is powerful through the whole novel who killed him? What's going to happen? Will love survive this? Those are major things. And, and let me, um, I, want to, I want to take this more immediately to our concern as a group here. One of the questions that I asked two weeks ago or several weeks ago was, what happens if we take Catholicism away? Because you know that in Ivan's Grand Inquisitor, that the whole Grand Inquisitor is an indictment of the Catholic Church that the Catholic Church takes away mystery, miracles, and authority. And it takes all of that off of people because the burdens of them are too great. To me, it's the most serious indictment I've ever heard of Catholicism. The interesting thing is it corresponds to Yvonne's argument at the very beginning of the book, that the church should absorb the state and take all of that on um, because it's the only way to correct criminals. You know, the whole the essay that he wrote. So I want to I want to step outside of the book for a minute. I only want to take a minute. I really wanted Mary to be here, but I, and I hope she listens to this. What happens if you take Catholicism away? I, I want to try to give pardon what may seem to be a presumption here or on my part. I'm going to give what I believe is a definitive answer. <laughs> Pray for my presumption for you, please. Catholic Church, the Catholic institution, is the only institution on earth that protects us against being a product of our age. That we become determined by our age. The Catholic Church locates us in something larger so that we can be free of it. So that we're not caught by all the isms that we read about in Dostoevsky and Fideo Ratio. Take any one, nihilism, skepticism, agnosticism, evolutionism, Marxism, feminism, take any of them. 
Every, almost everyone, every one of those modern ideologies denies man's free will or his nature and his powers of reason. So my answer to this question, you know, take Catholicism away, I mean this is going to sound stupid, but I'm saying it's the only institution on earth that protects our freedom. I'm saying that really honestly. It's the only one that acknowledges our sins and offers us a way out of them. Take Catholicism away and we're left in this world at its mercy. We become a product of our age. Evolutionists, agnostics, skeptics, you name it. Take all the isms that Chesterton went over or John Paul went over and that's what we become. So I'm saying this really honestly. One of the reasons for having that agnostic class was to say, here are the things working on us. Can we answer them? Because if we can't, we're stuck. We're just going to go doing our work, accusing our parents of being Catholic, <laughs> and, and not seeing how lost we are. So my answer to the question is, um, take away Catholic, what happens? Take away Catholic and we lose any sense of becoming who we really are. So I'm saying that as simply as I can, as definitively as I can. Um, um, now, this may seem tangential. I hope to make it clear that it's not. You know that I've been claiming that poetry has a special place, and somehow you guys have survived that, that poetry can do things that no other discipline can. I've been saying that the two most essential disciplines in our world are a realist philosophy, not idealist, not the philosophy going back to Descartes, where we're in our ideas in our heads. That's the modern idealist philosophy, Descartes, Kant, everybody forward. A realist philosophy starts in our bodies, with our senses. And I'm trusting everybody sees the importance to it. In an idealist philosophy, if you start in your head, you don't start with your, your senses, there's no way of relating to the world outside of you. And here's my contention, and I want everybody to underscore this. One of the bases of Christianity is that Christ actually appeared before us. He was present to our senses. His historicity cannot be doubted. If he's present to our senses, we can reason about him. So he was first before it ever became a matter of faith, it was a matter of reason. He was there to our senses. We could see him. We could, he could teach us. We could learn from him. I hope that's clear. There's nothing more encouraging to bringing faith and reason together than Christ. And the whole modern world, idealist philosophies, beginning with Descartes, in our heads. Science is in our heads, except, you know, in our senses, but to mathematical theories. So this is not a small matter. So here, my argument has been the two most important correctives of science. Science is a great thing. But we've let it become imperialistic. It's, we've given it too much power. And the two correctives of science are realist philosophy and literature. Now let me back that up because that's probably going to sound presumptuous again here. This is Alan Tate. This is Alan Tate. 
on the back page of our notes for tonight. This is a quote from that essay that I um, attached to my email to you guys. He's talking about the responsibility of the man of letters. The man of letters is a person who stands in freedom to his world, attempting to hold on to a standard of what it means to be human when the world is going to hell. Um, so he's drawn on everything he can to show the best of what it means to be human and the worst. Because in doing both of those, he shows us what we should be struggling to avoid and what we should be struggling to try to do. Is that clear? And he gives a list of works of literature in which people are going to hell. So Madame Bovary in, in that work, or Ahab, or Othello with Ivan, or let's take Brothers, Smerdyakov. He gives a list of people who are clearly damned. And the importance of that is that we can see that these people are like those around us. And if, Bob, if, I can, if, if I'm misquoting you, help me out here, because a couple of weeks ago, um, when I talked with Bob, asking him how he was finding um, brothers, he said he'd been reading the Ivan um, demon devil scene. I don't know if any of you were there yet, but Ivan's gonna have an encounter with the devils. And I was at, because we, I had uh, nefarious on my mind, and was asking him to make comparisons between Nefarious in that scene with Yvonne engaging in a demon. Because the demon's sitting right next to him. I'm going to leave it to you. The difference for you was what? can't ever miss that he's evil. Yeah. So, I, I'd hate to be Yeah. And it's really funny, when you get, to, if you haven't got to that point, the demon is described in sort of, um, I can't find the word, it, sort of middle class, dressed down mode, so it's, you know, he doesn't stand out, he doesn't startle you, he's, he's the sort of person you'd pass by. And I think that's one of the things that Bob was aware of that... said he was a nice guy. <laughs> you know, you find yourself talking with this guy and engaging in philosophy, agreeing and disagreeing, and so you're sort of at home, but you realize intermittently that this guy that seems mediocre has got a straw hat and could be anybody you met on the street is actually a demon, and it makes you aware that the devil could take on... <laughs> Um, really, um, um, what's the word? Deceiving appearances. Whereas you can't miss the devil. Who's the devil in Nefarious? I mean, it's just in your face. So, 
Tate is acknowledging a whole host of characters. This goes to a very important point we've been making all along. He goes to a long list of characters who have emerged since the 16th century after the Copernican Revolution and the Protestant Reformation. Because remember, with the Protestant Reformation, all Eve, all nature is evil. It's fallen. It's demonic. That's the whole thrust of Ahab and the, and the Moby Dick story. And Tate is questioning this list and where it came from. I want to put a positive list there, um, in, including Dimitri on it, because I want to make the case that the anti-hero begins with Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, and Dante. Dante, remember, Dante begins Divine Comedy Damned. That the whole list of the greatest literature that we've been reading has to do with anti-heroes. There are people who are going against their, the codes of their worlds, respectability, it could be the honor code, it could be the heroic code in Brothers with Dimitri. But they're all struggling to be good while, they're, while they have flaws. And we don't get any sense of this in Brothers Karamazov, but we believe as Catholics that there's such a thing called purgatory. So that if you fight every day of your life and you're serious in your fights and you still fail at becoming perfect, there's that mercy. So there's something, a mercy greater than our sins that's important to keep in mind in the Catholic tradition. Tate's not mentioning that. What he's doing is mentioning this whole host of characters who have entered our psyche in the modern world. And then he says this, but it's the business of the man of letters to call attention to whatever it is he's able to see. It is his function to create what has not been hitherto known and as a critic to discern its modes. I repeat that it's his duty to render the image of man as he is in his time. We want to see who we are in our time <coughs> to help us in our struggles. <coughs> Sorry. Without the man of letters would not be otherwise known. What modern literature has taught us is not merely that the man of letters has not participated fully in the action of society, it has taught us that nobody else has either. It's a fearful lesson. Here's where I'm going. We take the Eucharist in the belief that we participate more fully in the divine life of Christ. Yes? That he offers us a gift we can't offer ourselves. Yes? We, we take the Eucharist believing that we participate more fully in the life of Christ. How seriously do we take that taking the Eucharist we participate more fully in a human life with all that's awful about it? How quick are we to come to judgment? The, I mean, you can't come away from this book without realizing everybody's got everything wrong. There's nobody in this book that makes a correct decision about anybody. We're going to get to that tonight, but I'm trusting everybody sees that. Everybody misjudges. Everybody thinks, immediately thinks Dimitri's the killer. Everybody thought the murder of that woman, remember, that, just, that began to meet with Zosma? When he confessed to the murder, everybody thought he could not have done that. He did it. Um, over and over and over again, we keep seeing people who read according to appearances, who make judgments that way, and who do not read below surfaces. And mo 
nearly all of these people are Christian. So we're not, we're a step away from Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter, right, when everybody was doing the same there, and close to that in Melville. Now here's where I'm going with this. If you will bear with me for patience. The only man that has access to the interior of the human soul is the priest. There's no priest who's heard confessions over and over again who does not know the human soul. Would you all agree? Wouldn't you? There's nothing, nothing in the human soul that the priest does not know after confession. Nothing. He's going to know murder. He's going to know incest. He's going to know the worst of us. Would you all agree? You think? There's only one other person who has access to that interior. That's the poet. In every work we've been reading, we've been going into the interior and watching these people struggle with their sins, with, a, with the pressures of an outward world that half encourages them and half condemns them. Take any work you want, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, Divine Comedy in Florence, which is the prototype of the modern commercial regime. So here's my claim. Alan Tate says very, very clearly about the man of letters. Um, he says that the modern world is um, obsessed with mass communication. Mass communication. A guy picks up an iron object and he speaks to five million people. That's not an act of communion. They may get inspired. You can be in a minister's room and the minister can inspire you in a Protestant house. Yeah? Mass communication is not the same thing as communion. In the Eucharist, in communion, we are called in to share in Christ's divine life and that means with his cross. But it's the business of the man of letters to call attention to whatever he's able to see. It's his function to create what has not been hitherto known and as a critic discern its modes. We have to learn... How do poets come to do this? How did Dostoevsky get to do what he did with these characters? He makes known to us things that weren't known before. We see them more clearly. We feel them more clearly. I repeat that it's his duty to render the image of man as he is in his time, which without the man of letters would not otherwise be known. What modern literature has taught us is not merely that the man of letters has not participated fully in the action of society, it has taught us that nobody else has either. It's a fearful lesson. Francis asked the whole Catholic world to read the Divine Comedy. Why? Francis asked people to get out of their pews to participate in the world. One of the reasons for reading literature is that we get to see the inside of ourselves more clearly, see the awful things we do, so that we can better understand each other and help overcome those problems in love. How many divorces end up because somebody just does not want to deal with the bad things of another person? Or even worse, because I've really come to think this in my age, so often one of the reasons for divorce is 
But when, when we see our own responses to the way we deal with the faults of another person, we don't want to deal with the shame of seeing ourselves. What we do, easiest thing to do is run away from that or blame somebody else. That's the whole of Scarlet Letter. So one of the things that literature can do is help us participate more fully in this life by making us aware of the depths of our sins, the struggles that people undergo, and the cross that often we have to bear to help them overcome them. We have not read a writer who has encouraged us to resign ourselves to evil, to just give up, to just accept the faults of another person. If I'm wrong on that, correct me here. Every work has shown us people struggling to get better with each other, to not resign. That's a cross. So I'm saying that the only person who has access to the interior world as we know it is the priest. The only other person who has that access is the poet. And we've been seeing that work after work. My contention all along is that we should not be reading literature to make us smart, which is why people go to college. It's to help us understand who we are, to see things about ourselves that are not easy to see, to get better at understanding each other, and hopefully to get better at loving. So with that opening, let me stop. Any questions or comments or about the plug I've been given to poetry now for three years. Poetry is not just poetry. It's not a subject at school. No matter what the feminists or Marxists or Freudians say. Oh, somebody's got to say something. Come on. Yeah. But even if you were standing here in front of me reading the sonnet he wrote, he wouldn't know exactly the places my soul was going with that. Yeah. Yeah, no poet can. Yeah. It's not, not, not like a priest hearing, the, hearing me when I, when I bear my soul and yeah. tell my sins. You know, I, I said this before when we talked about um, Nefarious, but I was troubled by that movie because there's no resolution to it. That, that bothers me a lot. You, you know how hypercritical I am about artworks and particularly if they're dealing with good or evil. One of the things that bothers me about that movie is that there's no resolution. That the demons are in charge at the end and that psychiatrist comes out saying he believes in demons now but he doesn't believe in this, um, what's it called, the carpenter, you know. When the demons, I, I have never, I will never in my life I have never, will never, offer a group, a class, in, um, or uh, an artwork in which the demons are in charge at the end. 
because that to me is a theological failure that th it makes no sense to me artistically it's a bad art it's a bad theology there's no way God can be defeated. We already know that. God is all goodness. Evil's a privation. They can't stand head to head. God's defeated evil. We already know that. If you had any, you didn't, I think you don't even need revelation to know that. If you thought about good is all good, evil's got to be a departure from it. It's turning away from it. You can't defeat God. So any artwork that doesn't deal with evil and show that it's overcome at the end is an inferior work of art. We have not as a group ever read a work in which whatever evil was raised was not answered. Not Shakespeare, not Homer, not Dante, not Melville, not Hawthorne, not Dostoevsky. It, in this sense, and I, and I use the example from Dostoevsky, it's a good question, Karen. Um, remember I told you that Dostoevsky wrote a book called The Demons, The Devil. And I think the head note is from Christ, where Christ um, called the demons out and put them in the, the pigs or goats and sent, you know, he defeated them. The image we have in scripture is of God defeating evil. And the final answer to that was dying on a cross. And remember that we read that in when we did Matthew when it said an, a new age will come. So that in the, mom in the moment he dies on the cross, a new order has come. Evil's defeated, death is defeated. That's what he does. That demon is not defeated in Nefarious. He's there sort of flaunting himself saying hello Edward or whatever, the, you know, or whatever that psychiatrist. Yeah, there is, but I'm saying, I, if you're going to, I'm saying, I'm claiming pretty seriously, if you're going to deal with a, a theme in which you're dealing with a conflict between good and evil, and you leave evil unchanged or undefeated, then I think theologically it's a failure. That guy is still there. He's, in fact, it's a taunting sort of remark, hello to you, you know. And the guy's saying in, in the interview he just had that, um, that he believes in demons now, but he doesn't believe in a savior. I just, that to me is theologically a, a, a flawed philosophy. It's a flawed theology. And artistically, you can talk, I mean, people will say, sequel. You go on, I go on where you will. I, I judge a work, you know, I'm just saying as a work of art that that's, that's a real concern and it, I, I, I've got a couple of works on my mind, I don't want to mention the title of them, but I've got a couple of works, modern works, in which evil is not answered at the end and that really bothers me because I think, if, I mean if you think about a modern audience who's, who's become skeptical and, and cynical you know, you feed people in those kinds of works of arts. It's just going to feed their sense of nihilism, that there's no purpose or no... I don't think that's a healthy thing. I think all works of art have a purpose. They're, they're to help us see and feel things. Every, every one implies a philosophy or a theology. I, I'm critical of that work for that reason. Yeah. Did that insinuate that Nefarious was 
dead? I don't think so, because we know, we know the demons. Dante is, Dante is, Dante is sure on this, and I, I, this is probably too obscure to accept anybody but Bob who remembers the guy in Purgatory who cried out at the end. Remember at the very end of um, the Inferno, Fra Angelica, if I remember correctly, says to Dante that his body is up on earth, but it's inhabited by a demon. So Dante's talking to the shade in hell, and we know, so we know according to a Catholic understanding, because Dante is really absolutely orthodox, that there are demons inhabiting bodies, and when the bodies die, you know, they go elsewhere. But that isn't the way it's left in Scripture. We know that demons can leave bodies. I think intellectually what the demon says there is theologically sound. But to leave it unanswered is my quarrel with that movie. And that's not a small thing because, in my mind, it, the modern mind is cynical, skeptical, disbelieving, um, and it's got lots of evidence with all the isms, evolution, skeptic, you go where you will. It, it's more troubling for me that a movie like that that's as powerful as it is, because I, I think intellectually that's a, a brilliant, brilliant movie, intellectually. But to leave it like that, to me, is a failure. Dostoevsky will not do that, or I wouldn't be teaching him. Anyway, just the point that I was making about participating, that if we take the Eucharist, we're invited to participate in the divine life of Christ, but also our human life, and that means a cross, that, that there are only two people who have access to that interior, and I'm making this point now because we've had enough literature behind us. Priests know it. A priest can never confess that. He can never acknowledge that. That's between him and God. The confessional is protected. The only other person who has access to that interior is the poet. And it's really interesting to me that almost every major psychologist in the modern world looks to poetry. Freud, go Jung, go where you will. Freud goes to Oedipus, Socrates. The poets have been the ones who've known that interior since the beginning of time. I'm only saying that when we're reading literature, it's important for us to just not let it go as literature, that it's a privilege being given to us that the interior of a soul is open to us so that we can learn something about ourselves and other people, hopefully grow in understanding and in love, which is what's going on in the books we've read. The ending of Moby Dick is tragic. The ending of um, Brothers is not tragic, it's purgatorial comedy. It's a, it's a hopeful ending in suffering. Let's start, unless there are any other pressing questions. basic principle behind this is the two things we most need today is a realistic philosophy and literature. And I'm saying that knowing that 90% of the literature in our world is awful. 99% of the films coming out of Hollywood are awful. Awful.
And I hope you hear, I'm not encouraging you to read that or watch that. There are better things. Okay, I'm going to do something here that I generally try to do at this point, and I'm a little bit late, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to give a quick summary of the plots of um, books eight and nine. <coughs> These are on the on your outline. You don't have to go through them, but I want to just quickly summarize the, um, and then I'm going to read from passages to go to the serious question that I've got for tonight. So just a very quick review. Beginning of Book 8. Chapter 1 in Book 8. Um, Kuzma Samsonov. Um, Dmitri's obsessed with um, Grushenka. He needs money. We're not sure why. Um, he goes to um, Samsonov, who is a sort of patron of Grushenka, who tells him that if he goes to this merchant in another town, he may be, be able to um, sell the property. And we know that Dmitri believes that property was willed to him by his mother and that Fyodor has it and so he's resentful that his father has it. He believes it's his. But he's willing to um, sell it to this landowner. He doesn't know that the landowner wants to buy it from <laughs> Fyodor. So it's just one of the ironies about what people don't know. Um, he pawns his watch um, to pay for his transportation, but when he arrives, he finds the guy drunk and he returns home. Um, in chapter three, called The Gold Mines, he goes to um, Kokolikov, Kaklakov, Kaklakov, Madam Kaklakov, to ask um, to lend money. I'm just going to quickly go through some patches of there because she's, she's such a remarkable character. Um, this is in Part 3, book, book 8. It's about page 380, 387 or so in there. You know that she's Lisa's mother, and she thinks of herself as a really good woman. When um, Dimitri arrives, she greets him when he starts to... Um, insinuate that he needs money. This is on my page three or four. I know you have most important business, Dimitri. There's no question of presentiments, no retrograde pretense to miracles. Have you heard about the elder Zosima? This, this is mathematics. Um, you could not fail to come after all that's happened with Katrina Ivanovna. You could not, you simply could not. It's mathematics. I don't want to go through this, but repeatedly she keeps referring to things in terms of mathematics. That's Dostoevsky's way of getting, it's like moderns who count calories or do everything in terms of numbers. After Descartes, after the Copernican Revolution, we want to bring this sense of precision and care, so we count everything. Everything. I mean, think about every um, insurance policies, money, budgets, calories, food. Um, it's, I, I would put Bob on the spot here and give me, I'm sure he could increase the list in ways. But we do everything by numbers because we think it gives us precision and it, it, it seems to make us knowledgeable. 
Do we have a certainty about things? So she's very um, certain about what she's encouraging. And the two of them talk past each other. She says, go to the mines and work. You'll make your fortune there. And she says, she's, um, she says in 384, oh, believe me, I'm an experienced doctor of souls, Dimitri. She knows the soul. She knows, the, she knows what he needs. She says, go to the mines and work, and you'll make a fortune. Um, she says on 387, that is it, Dimitri. That is precisely what you need, what you thirst for, without knowing it. I know your soul better than you know your soul. I'm no stranger to the present women's question, Dimitri. The development of women and even of political role for women is the nearest future. That's my ideal. I myself have a she goes, She's got all these noble ideals of what should be, and she doesn't see that she's just living in her head, and the two of them are talking completely past each other. He needs 3,000 rubles. She knows what's best for him. Finally, when he gets exasperated and knows that um, the two of them are not communicating, he leaves. Um, he goes to his father's house, um, um, expecting to find um, Drushenka there. Before he goes, he goes to um, Prokotin's, um, to whom he hawked his pistols earlier to retrieve them and when he gets to um, the father's house he goes to the window he knocks the secret knock that he learned from Smirjikov the father approaches the window and it's at that point that Dmitri knows Grushenko is not there this is really important and so hold on to it because I want to come back to it in a moment suddenly the narrative breaks so if you go to that scene it's describing um, Fedor coming to the window and then we shift to Grigory who just is wakened and goes to the garden and he'll find Dmitri trying to climb the wall and he grabs him, he recognizes him and he says, parasite, because he believes Dmitri's just killed his father. And all of the evidence from that point on will begin to pile up against Dmitri. Um, he goes to Grushenka, he learns that um, Grushenka is set off to um, be reunited with his lover and um, on his way, he stops by this store and buys all this wine and food. And in um, chapter 8, which I'm going to come back to, um, he meets with Grushenka and her Polish lover and his companions and begins to play cards with them. He's, we learned from the innkeeper that the Polish guy had cheated on cards, has been taking money from Dmitri. He has nothing good to say about Russians and he's insulting to Dmitri. Dmitri at one point when the Pole insults um, Grushenka, picks up the Pole and puts him in a room and locks him there. Um, and he and Grushenka begin to party, dancers come in, they start drinking and get drunk. When they're about to fall asleep or make love, Grushenka suddenly hears this ringing and looks up. She's partly drunk and at that point sees the policeman come in who accused Dmitri. And it's at that point that they care on this humiliating investigation. Um, at the end of it, they'll be convinced, they won't be convinced that Dmitri's innocent and they will take him into custody to stand trial. Okay. I want to look closely at some of these passages. So, because this whole thing of what I've been calling participation, 
I do not want this left in your minds. I want this to be concrete because of, for this reason. The moral spiritual center of this book is um, Zosima and Alyosha. There's an integrity to them that nobody else has. Doc, when I asked you to describe the difference between the brothers, how did you describe um, Alyosha and Zosima? What was your term? Do you remember? Huh? Alyosha and Yeah, well, put Alyosha next to his brothers. Describe the three brothers, but put Alyosha next to Zosima at the same time. How would you describe the three brothers? Can you speak up? Sorry? Sorry? Drives himself mad. It's um, not firmly grounded in reality. Dimitri is, you were asking me why Dimitri was focused on the novel. Dimitri is the most. Can you hear Suzanne? Can you speak up, Doc? There's not much to add. We were on a walk the other day, and I loved what she's. I can't remember her phrase describing, but Alyosha. But it was something like somebody who's better than we are. That he's just a very virtuous person, spiritually good and pious, and wants to be good, and looks to Zosima. Ivan is an intellect. By the way, all three brothers that seem to stand out by wanting to excel. All of them. They all want to do. They all want to be exceptional. Ivan writes that essay, he stands out. Dimitri wants to be known for his courage, he's brave. Alyosha has no vanity in wanting to be better. It's a matter of ego. He wants to be good because it's good. He loves Zosimov and wants to emulate him. But Zosimov, or Alyosha, is an image of something always a little bit better than we are. Ivan is an image of a modern intellectual, in his mind. Dimitri's an image of somebody more rooted in his passions, man of spirit. If you remember, I went to the, if you, if you, on the far left, I don't know if you can see it, but if you remember Plato's soul, remember the circle in three divisions? Divide the circle into three. The top circle was reason, the middle circle was themos, spiritedness, and the lower circle was appetites. And Plato's under, argument is Reason controls the appetites. 
The intellect controls the desire for food or sex or whatever the bodily desires are. Reason controls the appetites by means of that middle element, thumos, spiritedness, anger. That the middle element, spiritedness, is love of no, noble things, truth, goodness, beauty. Hold on, is everybody picturing that? So there's three parts, reason, and the two lower parts are both desires. The desire for noble things and the desire for bodily things. The appetites for love of bodily things. So Dostoevsky has that clearly in mind, okay, the, the three parts. Ivan's an intellectual. Dmitri's spirited. He's given to anger and passions and wanting to be noble. Um, we can say Smirnikov is completely given to his appetites. And, but the change in Plato's soul is this. Reason for Dostoevsky, for it to be good, has to be connected to piety, to love of God. So the difference between Dmitri, or Dostoevsky's image of the soul is that reason can't be separated from piety. Take that away, as, um, it, as is in the case of um, Ivan, and reason goes mad. It turns in itself and reason goes mad. Or it turns into a Smerdikov, who uses reason for evil ends. Okay? Just hold on to that. Now I want to I want to go on and I want to focus on Dimitri to try to do justice to his character because here's the one thing we can't miss in the second half of the novel. Zosimov and um, Alyosha are the spiritual centers of the world. They're both deeply religious people. The last half of the novel is not about Alyosha or Zosimov, it's about Dimitri. That means half of that entire novel focuses on what, in a comparison with Zosim and Alyosha, is an inferior character. Why does Dostoevsky do that? The whole, in fact, the narrator says that in the very beginning. The novel's about Dmitri, not about Alyosha or Zosim. Why does he do that? What's his whole point to give that much attention? Because if you've all read through that, you know that the, the passages dealing with Dimitri go on and on and on when he goes to the town to deal with the merchant or goes to a Madame Kukolkov or wherever he's going. It's at length and in great detail. Why does he do that? Okay. So I want to um, just quickly read through a number of passages to try to hold on so that everybody has a concrete grasp of Dimitri and what Dostoevsky is doing to him. In this, um, chapter 1 in book 8 on Samsonov, three or four paragraphs in, the narrator says, To anticipate the thing was that he perhaps knew where to get the money, he perhaps knew where it lay. I will not go into details just now, as it will all become clear later, but what his main trouble consisted of, I will say, albeit vaguely. In order to take this money that was lying somewhere, in order to have the right to take it, it was necessary beforehand to return the 3,000 to Katrina. Otherwise, I'm a pickpocket, I'm a scoundrel, and I do not want to begin a new life as a scoundrel. Mitchell decided, and therefore he decided to turn the whole world upside down, if it need be, but to be sure to return the three. So before he does anything, 
He wants to get that money to return to her. I want to emphasize that because when the interrogations begin, he will never answer that. Or not until the very end does he answer the question about the money. He does everything to put it off because to admit it would be to admit that he's a thief, that he might be the murderer, and he says, murder, the sin that he's committed is worse than murder. Let me ask you now, what's the, what's the one sin he's most... <laughs> He, he, he most accuses himself of that he most wants to hide and doesn't admit till the end. He's a scoundrel? Yeah, F flesh it out, Chuck. Okay. Well, he violates his oath. All he has to run, he, he's self aware enough to know how bad he is, but he's got this one precious thing to hold on to the sense of honor. That he's got. <laughs> so if he has to admit to himself that he's a scoundrel, he has nothing, he's destroyed. Yeah. Who does that remind you of? At the very beginning of literature. At the very beginning. Yes. The whole Ilya was about honor and Achilles' sense of honor. We are back in the... I mean, there's almost not a, a more modern example of that Achillanian honor. I mean, you just touched on it. He, um, he's, not, he's not a murderer, he knows that, even though he's a murderer in his heart. The one thing he does not want to admit that is he's a scoundrel. He, because he said, so if I took, he, he, this will be his end argument. So if I took that money back to Katrina, the half that I had, and said, here, take half of it? Or, you know, do it before. He, he could not admit that. And by the way, it's important to hold on to this section that I just read because remember, everybody in the book assumes that he killed his father. And one of the pieces of evidence is that he has all this money. And when they talk to him about the money, he can't admit where he got it and why he's got it or how <laughs> because of this sense of his own integrity. Okay? He says he cannot do anything, not even go off with Rushenka until he... Um, pays Katrina. So he does everything he can to get money and it's only when he fails to get the money that he, he, he goes into despair and he says, I can't get it. He's going to take what money he has, go buy food and wine, go have this, try to have this one last fling and then kill himself. <laughs> I, everybody has got to be clear in this. You've got to have this clear picture of Dimitri, okay? I love this man. <laughs> He's, God, he's just, Suzanne, when I said to Suzanne the other night, so I said, how are you finding Dimitri? She said, I hate him, I hate him. It's like reading a soap opera, a modern soap opera. <laughs> it is, it is. Okay, quick, I want to go through this. Turn to page four, 432. I want to try to go through this as quickly as I can, so bear with me. Okay, so you know that he's returned to get his guns. He's, um, he went to his father's. There's, wait, there's three time interruptions. And I just want to point them out now because it's important to keep in mind time dimensions. One of them took place at the Cana miracle. Do you remember what happened? He just had the meeting with Grushenka. 
she told a story of giving that onion. Remember? And she said, I gave an onion. And it's important to her because she feels like she's just given an onion to, to um, Alyosha, and Alyosha's given an onion to her. That they both just saved themselves. Remember? And she tells the story of the, of the woman with the onion who's given a chance to save herself from damnation. And the angel gives her an onion because she did a good deed with an onion. And he started to pull her out. And when other souls wanted to hang on to her, she shook them off and said, it's, it's my onion. And then went back to hell. And um, Alyosha returns to the monastery and he has this dream um, while... Um, Pacey is reading from scripture the, the uh, Cana miracle and in the miracle what he hears during the dream is that um, Zosimov appears and he speaks about an onion which doesn't take place in scripture which means Zosimov who's already died is in heaven but he's speaking to Alyosha through this dream is that clear so it's one of those moments like the Eucharist, I used that in the last notes if you look at them, anamnesis, remember me, where we go back in time and the time is carried forward into the present. So we go back to the Cana miracle, Zosima's there, he's present to Alyosha now, talking about an onion. So it's been brought into the present. So there's a radical time shift in that moment at Alyosha's crisis, because remember, it's that point that he's he's believing along with other people that there was something wrong with Zosimum. A miracle takes place. His belief is um, reaffirmed. Um, a couple of days later, he goes out. He goes out that night, I think, kisses the ground, goes down to the earth, kisses, and then a couple of days later, leaves the monastery. There's that important time shift right there. That's one we cannot forget. So. We go back into scripture, we're carried forward in scripture, and it's living now. The two other time shifts are one, when Dimitri goes to his father's house, he looks into the father's house and his father approaches and suddenly the narrative breaks off and we're with Grigory. And everything that happens after that um, increases our belief that Dimitri killed his father. Then there's another moment in the interrogations when um, Pirkatun, the, the guy who gave him back the pistols, suddenly comes in. The narrator shifts. This is a subtler but important, so I want everybody to get it. The one at Canaan, the one at the window. The interrogation is underway, and in the middle of that interrogation, time shifts and we go to Pirkatun, I think that's his name, and we get him um, going through all the motions to try to find out what happened because he cares about Dimitri. And what happens at that moment is that we're taken into the, into the minds of everybody in town. So we're no longer in the minds of Ivan, Alyosha, Dimitri. We're in this public figure and it's through his consciousness that we get all these other public figures so we get this public reading of Dimitri's guilt. Is everybody following? So the, the point of view shifts to outsiders, everything that's outside in public, away from the interior. Because that's a way of showing how easily everybody was influenced by this evidence. 
and and we have we'll learn later that nobody got it right but at least this at this point there's that shift in time okay those are three major time shifts that we have to be aware of because they help us to see more clearly what's going on inside people outside people okay okay I want to look at what happens with Dimitri um, When Dmitri arrives at the end, he finds Grushenka there with the poles playing cards and enjoying themselves. He sits down and, um, and at one point in that, that scene, Dmitri asks um, Grushenka's former lover to go into a room and offers him money to go away. The man comes out and tells Grushenka what had happened and um, she is outraged that he could do that. Um, on page 430, this is the, the chapter called The Former and Indisputable One. The Pole says to Grushenka that he came to forgive her. He has this very condescending attitude toward her, like he's doing her a favor and returning to take up with their relationship. 4.30, forgive, you mean you came to forgive me, Grushenka interrupted? Just so, Panny, I'm not so pusillanimous, I am magnanimous. But I was surprised when I saw your lovers, Pan Mitya, in the other room, offered me 3,000 to depart. I spat in the Pan's face. What, he offered money for me? Grushenka's really angry. Panny, Panny, Mitya cried out, she's pure, she's shining, and I have never been her lover. It's a lie. How dare you defend me? She's <laughs> angered both of them now. Grushenka shouting, I have been pure not out of virtue and not from fear of Kuzma but in order to stand proudly before him here in the right to call him a scoundrel when I met him. But did he really not take your money? He was. He was taking it, Mitya exclaimed. Only he wanted all 3,000 at once and I offered him just 700 down. But of course he heard I had money. So he came to marry me. So she learns that the man had come for bad motives. She's furious at him. They want to return the um, money. Um, Dimitri takes the pole into the um, room and locks him up. And it's at that point that what happens basically takes the form of an orgy. This is chapter eight, delirium. The very first page, chapter eight, delirium. What began then was almost an orgy, um, a feast of feasts. Grushenka was the first to call for wine. I want a drink. I want to get quite drunk like before. Um, she and Dmitri begin to drink together and it's under the influence of the alcohol that they, they expose how vulnerable they are and for the first time they get past their pride and open themselves up. Well, if you sick, God help me. Were you really going to shoot yourself tomorrow? What a silly man, but why? I love such men, reckless men, like you, she prattled. So you're ready to do anything for me, huh? But you're really going to shoot yourself, she goes on. Um, uh, page 438, a few pages beyond. Mitch's head was burning. He walked out to the hallway and onto the upper 
wooden veranda which ran part way around the inner side of the building overlooking the courtyard. The fresh air revived him. He stood alone, the darkness in a corner. Suddenly he clutched his head with both hands. His scattered thoughts suddenly came together. A terrible, awful light. If I'm going to shoot myself, what better time than now swept through his mind. Go and get the pistol, bring it out here and end everything. Um, going down a few lines, the terrible ghost had suddenly returned into something so small, so comical, it was carried to the bedroom and locked up. He would never return. She was ashamed by her eyes. He could now see clearly whom she loved. She now, so now all he had to do was live. But he could not live. He could not. Oh, damnation. God, restore him who was struck down at the fence. Let this terrible cup pass from me. You worked miracles, O oh Lord, for sinners just like me. And what, what if the old man is alive? Remember when he's, I, I didn't read it, but remember when he's on the way to the inn, he has that prayer to God where he says, um, I'm a convicted man, don't judge me. I, I condemn myself. Even if I go to hell, I will love you always. Um, Um, Grishenka and um, Dmitri are together in bed. Mitya, Mitya, I did love him. She began in a whisper. I loved him so. This is 438 in my book. I loved him all these years. It's a lie that I loved only my spite and not him. Mitya, I was 17 then. He was so tender with me, so merry. He sang me songs, or did he only seem that way to me, to a foolish girl? Go down. How shall I meet him? What shall I say? How shall we look at each other? My soul was frozen, and then it was as if he emptied a bucket of slop on me. He talks like a schoolmaster. It's also learned, so pompous. He greeted me so pompously. I didn't know what to do. I couldn't get a word in. Um, she talks about the wife having changed this man. This is what one of these moments that we call disillusionment. We start with these dreams. They, they get crushed, they don't work out the way we want, and we suddenly learn that there were illusions and we have to get through them. Mitch, my dear, wait, don't go, I want to tell you something, she whispered. Listen, tell me whom I love. I love one man, who, who is it? You tell me. <coughs> Tonight a falcon walked in and my heart sank inside me. You fool, this is the one you love, my heart whispered to me. Go down a few lines. Mitya, Mitya, how could I be such a fool to think I could love another man after you? Do you forgive me? <coughs> Sorry. Um. Four forty-two. This is crucial. For a moment, he can't relieve himself of the guilt he's feeling for Gregory. He thinks he killed him, and he says. Um, I'll take you, we'll fly away, I'd give my whole life now for one year, if only I knew about that blood. What blood, Grushenka? Nothing, Mitt, you growled. Grushenka, you want it to be honest, but I'm a thief. I stole money from Katya. What shame, what shame. From Katya, mean young lady, she says, that's fine, give it back. I want to scrape the earth with my hands. We must work, do you hear? Alyosha said so. I won't be a mistress to you, I'll be faithful, I'll be your slave. I'll work for you. Go down. If you love her or strangle her, I'll put out both of her eyes with a needle. I love you, you alone. She says, I, um, they'll go to Siberia. It's at that point, a bell starts ringing and the police come in and accuse him of um, 
I want to look during the interrogation they keep questioning him about um, why the money um, why the pestle um, but before we do I want to um, This is where he's asked to undress. If anybody can help me here. On page 484, they see blood on him and they ask him to undress. And I want everybody to recall this personal fact of Dostoevsky because it, it goes to what I think is one of the most extraordinary things about this scene. Remember that Dostoevsky was accused of being involved in those conspiracies against the government. He was taken inside, made to undress, and then go out to be executed. So he knew he was going to his death, and right, right at the moment when they were going to kill him, the execution was called off. Okay, Just keep that in mind here. On 484. There's no time for joking, the man says. Well, if you need it, Mitya muttered, and having sat down on the bed, he began taking his socks off. He felt unbearably awkward. Everyone else was dressed. He was undressed and strangely undressed. He himself seemed to feel guilty before them. And above all, he was almost ready to agree that he indeed suddenly be become lower than all, the, all of them, and that they now had every right to despise him. Quote, if everyone's undressed, it's not shameful, but when only one is undressed and the others are all looking, it's a disgrace. That's through his mind. It's like a dream. I've dreamed of being disgraced like this, but to take his socks off was even painful for him. They were not very clean, nor were his underclothes, and now everyone could see it. And above all, he did not like his own feet. All his life, for some reason, he had found both his big toes ugly, especially the right one with its crude, flat toenail, somewhere curved under, under and now they would all see it. This unbearable shame suddenly made him deliberately now even more rude. He tore his shirt. He's furious. It's at that point finally he gets um, outraged at them. Um, and the interrogation continues. One more scene and then I want to stop. When it's all almost over, he's left for a moment and he falls asleep and he has this dream. Um, and in the dream, on page, this is chapter 8, it's the very end of this section. Um, page 507 in my book. He has a dream. Um, he's moving through this town, and this is what happens. It's snowing. Um, the peasant is driven briskly, waving his whip nicely, has a long, fair beard. He's not an old man, maybe 50. Um, and he sees these women in line, um, most of them wasted. He says wasted, their faces sort of brown color, especially that one at the end, such a bony one, tall, looking as if she were 40, but she may have been only 20 with long, thin face in her arms, a baby's crying. Um, why are they crying? Why are they crying? Mitya asks. The wee one, the driver answers. It's the wee one crying. It's the fact that the man says we, that they're in their language, that takes him. Um, and he likes that the peasant said we one. There seems to be more pity in it. Why is it crying? Mitya says. 
The wee one's cold. Why is it so? Mitya asked. They're poor, worn out. They've got no bread. They're begging for their burnt place. No, no, Mitya seems not to understand. Tell me why. He begins to identify with all of them um, and that it ends, I'm with you too, I won't leave you now. I will go with you for the rest of my life. The dear deeply felt words of Grishenka came from somewhere near him. She's already declared she thinks he's guilty but she's going to follow him anywhere. Um, and he wanted to live and live to go on and along some path inwards the new beckoning light and to hurry, hurry right now at once, where he claims where, suddenly he wakes up and he doesn't know how he had the pillow put under um, his head. <coughs> Just at that moment, after this enlightening moment in the dream, um, he's taken away, he asks forgiveness of everybody, um, and the last words are, Kalganov ran back into the front hall, sat in a corner, bent his head, covered his face with his hands, and began to cry. He seen Dmitri take away. He sat like that and cried for a long time, cried as though he were a little boy and not a man of 20. Oh, he believed almost completely in Mitch's guilt. What are these people? What sort of people can, be, can there be after this? He kept explain, exclaiming incoherently in bitter dejection, almost in despair. At that moment, he did not even want to live in the world. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? The grieving young man kept exclaiming. That'll take us into part, part four and um, Aliosha with the kids. Here's my question. It's a serious question. Sorry for taking so long, but I... Um, Dimitri's taken into an interrogation. Um, the people are pretty much convinced that he's guilty. At some points, they have doubts because he seems so honest and sincere in what he's doing. He's not afraid to say things. But all the evidence is pointing against him. Um, Gushenko has promised she will love him. She thinks he's guilty. She's not going to leave him. She says, we will go to Superior. She'll be a slave. Um, he says the same thing to her. They're so deeply committed. Um, the people come, take him away and interrogate him. They make him undress and there's that humiliating scene um, where the degradation of being naked is almost greater than the accusations of killing his father. And then he has this dream of this wee babe crying and it awakens this pity in him and wants to know why you know, all of this is happening and I think there's some identification with Dmitri in this. And then Kalganov um, is so overwrought at seeing Dmitri taken away that he wonders whether he should um, stay alive. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing up-close glimpse of Dmitri. At the heart of it is this. In Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, Raskolnikov commits a murder. And the whole book is about his being called to justice. Okay? In this book, one of the great themes has to do with reading. In this book, everybody, everybody misreads. The stranger killed that woman. Everybody disbelieved him when he said he did it. What are some others? Um, Smirjikovs tell things and people won't believe him. Um, all the evidence points to Dmitri killing his dad. All of it. 
and everybody believes he's guilty. We will find out later that, I don't want to give it away, Dimitri did not kill his dad, I don't want to go into it. But everybody's convinced he, he has, or did. Why all this focus on Dimitri? That's my first question. Why, why all of this on this one man? And the other question is this. Dimitri and, and Grushenka undergo a profound conversion. The, del the delirium is real. They want to get drunk and have sex. I mean, and, and once they start drinking, they get past their pride and say things to each other that make them absolutely vulnerable to one another. They're just, there are no facades. They're hiding nothing. They're completely exposed. She believes he's guilty. He, he knows he's not. But remembering Zosimov, he says, unless you're the worst of the worst, you'll never be able to love anybody. Unless you accept that you're the worst of the worst, you'll never be able to judge fairly. Those are Zosima's principles. Everybody's judging Dimitri wrongly. Dimitri's arrived at a point where he's actually judging himself. The only thing he wants to protect himself from is being accused of, a, of being a scoundrel, a thief. But here's my question. Um, is there something to be learned for being accused of something that you're not guilty of and that you have to suffer from? And let me try to flesh that out. I would say most of us, I'm certainly true of me, most of us would get really angry if somebody accused us of doing something we didn't do. We tend to get very touchy and justify ourselves. What do you do when you're accused of doing something and you didn't do it and you're forced to pay the consequences of it. Because that takes us to Christ. So, in most works of literature, we see people brought to justice for a crime they did, and have to pay for it, some justice, justice has to be done. In this work, we're dealing with a guy who's accused of something he didn't do, and is having to suffer from it, and in that suffering, He's discovering things about himself that he wouldn't have known otherwise. Is everybody following? So what's Dostoevsky doing here? Um, and why Dimitri? The whole novel has been bringing us here. And it's going to go to a trial scene where we're going to see a prosecutor defender make arguments. We've got to get there, but I don't want to get there yet. But there's still a trial ahead of us. Why this focus on Dimitri? What's the importance of reading? And does it say anything that Dostoevsky has set this up? So Dimitri is accused of a crime he did not commit. And through the suffering that he's undergoing, he and Grushenka come to a love much greater than anybody else in the novel. Nobody's ever done this. I, I can't. Not Jane Austen, not Shakespeare, not Dickens. Well, the one character that I know, Dickens in Tale of Two Cities, um, Sidney Carlton at the end gives himself up to die for the other man when he's not guilty. Um, that's a pretty rare. But what's he doing? Accused, and 
kind of like a, a, a Dimitri. No, I don't want to say Dimitri, but he's not. But in, in what he's going through, it's conversion that's going to come upon him. So I don't want to make this personal, but what do we do if we take Dostoevsky seriously because this is a rare thing that we're watching somebody under... He becomes more and more ashamed of himself. He's naked at one point. He's just the humiliate the, the degradation is so complete. You know, he, he's... It's like Lear on... The only other comparison that I know is when we did King Lear on the, on the Heath, when Lear lost everything. But we didn't experience a degradation like this. So what do we do when somebody accuses us of doing something we didn't do? Is there something to be learned here? Do we just let it go? Um, how, do we, how do we look at Dimitri as a kid? Why is Dostoevsky doing this with Dimitri? Well, well, Dimitri is, more than any other character, he's driven by his passion. I can relate to that. Uh, I, can, I can't quite relate to being an intellectual of the caliber of Ivan. Or, uh, or I can't quite relate to being as uh, well-grounded and, uh, and confident as Alyosha. But, you know, there's a piece of me in Dimitri. Yeah. yeah. So, I, I don't know. In a, in a phrase, he has to suffer death to be reborn. Say it again, Chuck. He has to die to be reborn. He has, he has to give up all of his pressure. Everything. Everything. Absolutely everything. Even the ugliness of his big toes. Yeah, yeah. The humiliation of the... It's really true. I mean, it's, it's just there's something to be said. And what's even more amazing is he's innocent of the crime he's convicted of. And he's being made to suffer of it, and yet, the reason I'm saying I, I underwent something similar, and I remember the rage. I mean, it was not a small thing for me because it had to do with the job teaching. And a good friend of mine, in, who teaches in New Hampshire, underwent a similar experience. And I've tried. It was unfair. I mean, he was accused of something with a young student, a woman, and he's just suffered for years. And I've tried talking with him about this. And I didn't recall this particular scene, but I'm reading it now with that sort of background in mind that the, most of us find ourselves pulled up short on, matter, on matters of justice pretty seriously, I think. Um, and here we've got a character who's taken so far beyond and is, I think about sometimes people who are unfairly accused and who have to, you know, undressed and be naked and go through the degradation of being accused when they're not guilty. I mean, it's sad to see people committing crimes and being turned out on the street today. That to me is a horror, just a horror. But we all know that sometimes innocent people are convicted. And I, don't, I can't remember a story in which we're given a concrete description of exactly that sort of thing when somebody who's, all the evidence points against him, so it's not like these people are abusing justice. You know, they. They're, they're, they're using their powers of reason the best they can. Everything that they say is plausible. They're convinced of it. But we know, or we don't know at this point, that he's guilty. Um, and yet the humiliation is so deep. So deep. And it just makes me wonder, I mean, with Christ, if there isn't something to be said for... Um, 
the suffering that's offered to anybody when they're not guilty of something they're going to suffer for. Because it seems to me that takes us more immediately to Christ. Um, hard place to be. And I think, I couldn't agree with, with um, Michael or Suzanne, that to me of all the people in the novel, Dimitri is the most human. He's the most, I mean, he early, remember he said to Alyosha in the garden, I'm a, I'm a, a creeper, a, I'm a, whatever the beetle or snake or, you know, he's acknowledged from the beginning and he said, and Alyosha said, I'm a Kerem, we're all Kermazovs, we all have this in us, these passions, these, the, the qualities of sensuality of, you know, being taken by the world. Um, he's the most given to that, most conspicuously, Dostoevsky spores him so, there's not an aspect of his character but we don't know about it. It seems to me he's just showing us ourselves nakedly. I mean, if, if, we, if, we, if we kept any of the worst parts of us in the dark, you know, to ourselves or wouldn't like to admit them or admit them and go about living our lives and, you know, make a place for them but go on, it seems you just can't escape it here. It's just, <coughs> it is so laid bare. And any, we're going to stop any... I'm just thinking, it was his passions and his openness about his passions that really got him into this jam. Because he let everybody know that he wanted to kill his father. He, everybody knew that, I mean, that he felt gypped out of this money. He even hit his father, he attacked him, or so yeah. I mean, he yeah. was so obvious and open about it that then it came back terribly. It's an in, it's, to me, it's a powerful story about sin, because remember, if you take Madame Kokolkov and Musev, they both live in surfaces, they're both a product of this enlightened world, the last thing that they can admit about themselves is their sin. You can't miss Dimitri's sin. Um, Alyosha's had a crisis of sin. Dimitri's, or Ivan's going to go mad, you know, in his disorders. So it, um, in Dimitri, the, the sins are laid bare. Um, the, the part of the power of this book is you can't see him and not be made aware of his sins. And, and feel the fact that he's suffering for them when in fact he didn't commit them, even though he's got these sins. So that when the redemption comes, if I'm not, I hate getting ahead, but if the redemption comes, it shows the redemption of Christ. That, um, that Christ died when he didn't deserve, that sometimes we will suffer things that we didn't deserve, but there is a greater redemption there. Um, in this understanding of sin that the world just does not have. Um, it's a pretty remark. He, he goes, in my mind, he just goes so far beyond Jane Austen or Dickens or Conrad or, you know, Faulkner gets close to it, but this is, this is pretty powerful. This is pretty deep stuff. Any last thoughts before we Sin and redemption. 
um, and a suffering undeserved that actually helps a person become more capable of loving. <laughs> Let me put it differently. How, this is gonna, how much do we love because we think we deserve it and we get what we want because we deserve it? I'm, gonna, I'm just putting that out there because what's going on here is Dimitri's being made to suffer for something he did not do. He comes to a greater love. How much do we hold ourselves back from loving because we only go as far as we think we deserve or we give what we think we deserve or we return? How many of us are actually willing to go to a cross and suffer when we don't deserve it? To be with Christ. Dostoevsky is going to a, he's going to ironies here that we just have not seen like this to this point in the Any last thoughts? Okay. If our lungs hold out, we'll see you in a week. <laughs> Good luck. Okay. Something I had to bring up. I was reading yesterday this very, very intellectually enlightened man who was talking about the role of Plato's cave in the Barbie movie. In what movie? The Barbie movie. A Barbie movie? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that Plato's cave is everywhere anyway. <laughs> if anybody has any serious thoughts about... Uh, Top Gun Maverick, let me know. Good. Yeah? Good. Bring them. Just so long as they bring food. I think Born Free is a good choice, too. Have you seen it? I love the movie. I, I watched Born Free from the back seat of a Plymouth station wagon. My mom <laughs> took us to a drive-in movie to see it. Oh, wow. but, oh, oh, God. That was 100 years ago when we all went to drive-ins. Yeah. I love that movie.
next week. I'm glad you're back. Yes. Fan is. Oops, I didn't turn this off. Or isn't that yours? This is. I turned mine off. Did you? I thought I turned mine off. Holy cow! 